Welcome to Just Checking In. I'm Becky Buckman. And I'm Kiana Corliss. Each week, we'll use humor, a little irony, and definitely some self-deprecation to dive into the world of high-tech corporate comms. We'll use our expertise and less-than-serious take on the tech news cycle to bring you the best in the business across comms and media for one-of-a-kind insights and perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Get ready to laugh and maybe even start a tweet thread. This is Just Checking In. Okay, Becky, I have something funny to tell you. Oh, so, what is it? <laughs> I know, I never say anything funny. Uh, so, you know, my dad, big fan. I don't know him, but I know of him, in. yes. Well, yes. obviously, uh, everyone knows him. Uh, big fan of just checking in. Okay, good. Listen good. to the podcast last week. I got a text from him immediately yelling at me over the use of dick pic. Oh, uh, because of basis. Uh, I wondered if that was going to be a compliance issue on my end, to be frank, and they let that go. So, well, um... it was a compliance issue in the Fercondipe family. Uh, <laughs> so he goes, You can't say that on your podcast. And I said, First of all, it was a news topic. Yes. It is not my fault that Bezos has questionable texting practices. Right. I was simply reporting on the news. So, and you didn't even fine. utter it. It was our esteemed guest That's who uttered that. Also, phrase. what I said, I was like, I didn't say it. Uh, oh, but so he did. He loved the podcast, but I did get a little bit of trouble. So this this episode though is clean, clean. guys. You can yeah. you can listen with your children. That's right. I think Sean might have dropped that. He did ask. He said, "Can I swear on this podcast?" And we gave him explicit permission. So he was a little more careful. It's funny I how think. many people ask if they're allowed to swear. I know, I, think, <laughs> I know, I know. Maybe it's it just is our weird. It is weird. But listen, we don't, we always like to just talk a little bit about some, you know, comms or technology or market topics before we dive in. And this week, I was thinking about Stripe, and Stripe has been in the news over the last week or two because they're one of these big, huge private unicorns. You know, one of the biggest, obviously. And like a lot of these companies that has presumably, you know, had had to delay an IPO or another liquidity event because of what's going on in the markets, they're trying to figure out how to help their employees, you know, many of whom were expecting to, you know, make some money from their stock. So I think they're, they're you know, there have been a lot of stories in the information and elsewhere. The information has been breaking a lot of news lately, I would say. They but, do um, break a lot of news. They do a very, I know. very good job of that. It's, it's yeah. a very interesting topic because I've dealt with this, um, you know, a lot at places I've been and, and, um, it's tricky, right? Because you, you have employees that were there early, uh, with, and the upside capital for them is huge. And what a lot of people don't realize is the earlier you're there, most likely it's options versus RSUs. And to yes. be able to, uh, have those options or exercise those options, you have to actually pay. And mm -hmm. if you, got somewhere and early and you have enough options and then over 10 years as options are worth a lot more you're actually kind of handcuffed to that company because if yeah. you can't fork up you know a ton of money to be able to exercise them you right. can't really leave um rscs are different because they're mm -hmm. they're restricted stock units usually they're later in a company stage there's less risk and but the the option game is real because it, it really does handcuff people to companies and it becomes a very stressful thing for employees. So yeah. dealing with and it's it is how exactly. And it's how tech companies like to compensate, right? Because that keeps yeah. their, you know, fixed costs down. I mean, there's also tax implications, right? Which yep. is why I think a lot of companies went to RSUs because the tax Correct. situation is easier for the employees. So all right. right. Well, they do the really, 
Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, another thorny comms issue. I feel like Stripe is, you know, handling it pretty well. There's been other, you know, God, the markets have been crazy. You know, I love it how like the market goes down that happened this week because more people have jobs. Apparently that's, I don't, I I don't, I've said this before. I don't know. (laughs) I'd never understood how insider trading worked Cause I used to like help write the earning scripts and I still couldn't get what the market was going to do with that information. So I don't know. I know. (laughs) I know. I think this has to do with like people thought the fed was, was not rising anyway, but I just find it rather strange and circular that, you know, more people have jobs. We're not in a recession, but that's bad. You know what I think? I think we need to have a wall street trader come in and explain to us (laughs) the emotions behind how this, that's what we need. Let us well, know. We you need guys, the, we need the wor- tweet wolf. Us. This is a, this is a story for a whole other pod. But I believe when I was a, a cub reporter, I believe that I m- one of my sources he never outed himself. I believe it was Jordan Belfort from the Wolf of Wall Street because he called me and he gave me some tips that resulted in some stories. And he would never tell me what his name is. And finally, I go, "Wait, what should I call you? What I I don't know how to get in touch with you." And he goes, "Call me Kaiser Kaiser Sose." And Wait, that what? is. Look, this okay, is a wild you, story. How you have you need, never right, told this whole, story? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I feel like I probably talked to Jordan Belfort, who was portrayed by Leonardo DiCaprio in The Wolf of Wall Street. But I'm not, I can't prove that. So that's my, that's my goal. Jordan, if you are listening to our podcast, tweet call at in. us. Colin. Colin, first time caller. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Caller. All right. Well, listen, so we've got, um, it continues to be a bumpy ride in the markets, but um, a lot of, a lot of tech companies I think are hopefully seeing the end. And then we have a great pod coming up with Sean Garrett, who is the head of mixing board. He is. And I think, you know, to your point about it being a bumpy ride, I think mixing board is giving a whole lot of people, a whole lot of really good advice um, yes. and, and doing really good work in the world of calm. So um, for those of you, this one's for the real ones, like a real comsy mm-hmm. uh, podcast. Who, who, who wants no, to learn more about the craft. It's hardcore. That's right. Hardcore. No mention of dick pic in this one. So no, um, you've said it so the, many times. Your dad's going to text you I'm again. I'm in so much trouble time. after this. You guys. Okay. All right, let's do it. So our guest today is someone who could be one of the biggest comms innovators in technology today. He's Sean Garrett, who in his two decade plus career in the industry has done everything from building the first comms team at Twitter, a very hot topic today, to starting the boutique agency Pramana Collective, to even working in politics, including for former California governor Pete Wilson and for a Lithuanian political party, if I have that right, Sean. Is that correct? Yes, you do. You do. Big on Lithuania. Okay. Um, So these days, Sean keeps busy as the founder of Mixing Board, which is a unique expert community of around 200 or so comms and brand marketing leaders who share knowledge with each other and with other organizations who are looking for a collective network that they can sort of tap into for extremely high level comms expertise at certain moments in time. You may have read Recently about Mixing Board and TechCrunch, there was a nice profile story in there. Um, or seeing some of the biggest names in the business talking about Mixing Board on social media. And I'm about to do that because just recently I went through the onboarding and I am now 
a mixing board member. This feels like high school all over again. Can I just be part of the group? Can you just let me <laughs> I know in? A, I know a guy. I know a guy. I know a guy. Well, welcome, Sean. We'll get Kiana sorted in a bit, but we're really happy to have you on the pod. Well, I'm excited to be here. Thanks so much for having me. We have so much to talk about, but let's start with mixing yeah. board because this really is kind of a unique concept and I think it may not be completely yeah. intuitive for people who are first learning about it. Maybe we could start yep. with just talking about like, what was the specific problem you were trying to solve with this group? It actually goes back to being at Twitter and being the first comms marketing anything person there. And this is like way back five Twitters ago, 2009 through the end of 2011. So I built the comms team there, rest in peace. And uh, perhaps the last one. <laughs> yeah, perhaps. Yeah. The bottom line was, is that in the role, it was awesome, interesting, complicated, but also incredibly isolating and lonely. It was a really hard job. And when I kind of got spat out of it, I'm like, guy, you know, I've been in comms for 20 plus years. I've done crazy things. I've been the head of comms before. I've started agencies before. I've done a lot of things, but that was really hard. And I didn't know how anyone to turn to. So that was a big impetus for me starting the thing that I started before. Mixing board, which is called Pramana Collective, which we'll talk about. But anyway, Pramana was more of a classic consulting thing. And so I always kind of carried this, the spirit of it. And we did work with Pramana that I can talk about that kind of played into that. But at Pramana, we kind of scratched the surface. And so this little thing called the pandemic started and I became a very cliche person in creating my own pandemic project, which was mixing board. So a mixing board was kind of a way to completely shake up and bring community into top comms and marketing leaders. And really importantly, not just quote unquote comms folks, but also brand marketing folks of all the colors of the spectrum. I was really kind of bothered slash intrigued by the fact that I would always get these phone calls from CEOs or venture capitalists who have five more houses than I have and I've worn. But these people would say, Sean, I need your advice. I need to pick your brain. I need to get your perspective. I heard you were great. And I would get on these phone calls and they would ask me about comm strategy. They'd ask me about who they should hire to do X, Y, and Z. And I don't know why, but like, I would just like, I can have a quick read and I'm able to like analyze situations pretty fast and I would give them really good advice. And then they would say, thank you very much. They'd hang up and I'd never hear from them again until they wanted to pick my brain again. It's like, why don't we do this for free? No one else does this for free. Like lawyers don't do this for free. Doctors don't do it for free. No one else does yeah. this for free. Yeah. And so, but we do yeah. it all the time. Yeah. I don't know why. I was like trying like this need to prove ourselves. And so I started talking to a bunch of other people who were not busy during the pandemic, but who otherwise would have been very busy. And they kind of reflected the same thing. And so I thought, well, wouldn't it be cool if not only if we had a community, we were able to also find ways for people to tap into this community and get their perspective and maybe not just even the perspective of specific individuals, but also the individuals of a broad group of people. So we're doing things like talent sourcing where companies who are looking for senior level talent will hire us to uh, source folks. And then we're also doing mentorship and things like we call like a super group where we bring three members together to like work with an organization on some sort of inflection point they're going through and give them advice and perspective. My hope is that by like finding awesome talent, by mentoring people, by giving good advice and having each of all of our members improve each other, then we can better the entire industry. 
make it smarter, make it more respective and higher paid. And that would be a cool outcome. And that's the idealistic side of it. But that's the real reason why I started it. I love all of this for a number of reasons. And Becky and I've talked about this for a long time, but comms is one of those things that a lot of people think they can do until they start Mm -hmm. to do it. And then they're like, oh my God, this is really hard. And it goes beyond just the relationships and things like that. And so it is one of those things that people assume because they could just do it, mm-hmm. asking your advice. It doesn't take much of your time. And and what they don't realize is it took a lot of time to be able to give that advice in three minutes, or it, it took a lot of time to be mm-hmm. able to text a reporter and get that TechCrunch article in a half an hour. So I do think that just as an industry, we're starting to become more and more valued. I think the companies with the best comms are the ones that give their comms team a seat yep. at the table or the ones with the best PR. So I think it's we're at a really important inflection point. Have you seen sort of a rise in kind of the stock that is being given to comms folks across companies? Yeah. I mean, I think there was that fun time in my career where people thought PR stood for press release. I think they still, I still do. hear that. Yeah, I still hear that. Yeah, it, it still happens, but I think it happens less, right? We're all talking from a very Silicon Valley perspective. And I think we're, we're frankly blessed, you know, in kind mm-hmm. of this, in our world to A, work with probably the people who respect comms the most and B, have the smartest comms. And I don't think it's coincidence because I think that the smartest comms people pound for pound kind of work in our industry. As this yeah. industry has kind of grown up together, as comms has grown up with Technology, the technology world. I think that, you know, there's been enough executives and enough investors and board members who have seen what good comms is. And I think it's seeing good comms is and experiencing it is obviously way more valuable and important than like being on the receiving end of that app, be at that quote unquote table. I think it's, you know, you just have to prove yourself and do it versus asking. Um, so I think that's definitely changed things. And I think you've seen kind of as you get into that, the people who have done, you know, gone through the rodeo before and now are working at a third company or a third startup. And they, they're the ones who are going back and hiring folks who just were excellent at their roles. And, and they really see the value because they've been in the trenches with these folks. And there's been enough diasporas of companies, you know, Obviously, Twitter being one, you know, where really, really great comms folks work with lots of really outstanding leaders. And now many of those leaders and all those comms folks are on the market or working in different places. And then it's just like an explosion of kind of access to talent. And I think that's that's hugely beneficial. Well, we we should definitely talk about what's going on at Twitter. Yeah. I think Keanu was actually just on a TechCrunch podcast talking about that very thing, which is like, how, how do you survive yeah. without a comms department? I like what you said about the fact that, you know, in Silicon Valley, we're in a place where a lot of company leaders probably understand, innately understand the importance of brand and comps. But at the same time, I work for a venture fund that's got a lot of investments oh. in smaller companies. And I have to say that Oftentimes in in bad times or difficult times, which is what we're in now, comms is sometimes seen as yep. more expendable, right? You know, because like we got to sell the product. The board members are telling us that we got to cut costs. So I don't know. Are you are you seeing that or are you hearing? I, I don't know if some of the engagements that you're mixing board members are involved in have to do with those issues. But I see it as like it's also kind of a difficult time for comms right now. It's definitely not great. 
I mean, it's difficult, but I also don't think that the need, and I think like those companies who cut folks or who don't hire for those roles, like they're cutting their nose off to spite their face, obviously. Um, and I think that'll come back to bite them. And I think that will also have an impact. You almost, you never want to be in a situation where you have to prove your worth and like prove why you should exist. I counsel people, if you have to do that, like probably not a good job for you. That's honestly in any industry. That's really good mm -hmm. advice. Yeah, that is mm -hmm. really good advice. <laughs> to your yeah. partner, it, to your boss, anyone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to your kids. <laughs> <laughs> well, my kids question my worth all the time, but like I don't really have much to do. Yeah. I can't do much about that. But I do think, you know, in many ways, the where it really hurts is for the kind of junior level comms folk. And I think it's just a sucky time to be in. in if you're why, I mean, the, the good side is you've just seen a lot in the last four years. You've learned a lot. If I learned more than kind of anyone in this job at any point in time in this in industry, um, but two, like, it just kind of sucked. Like, you've been working remote. You haven't been able to learn from people, like, firsthand in person. Um, and now you're, like, on the precipice of a potential recession and people are, are questioning kind of, like, your value and your worth. Like, that sucked. I'm not sure what I could say about that to make it better besides the fact that like, if you can make it through this, you can make it through anything. But for like the senior level people and the people who have senior staffs and who can provide like strong counsel, these are the times though, as our role is expanded and has become effectively in charge of internal communications, in charge of internal culture, in charge of navigating the kind of complexities between the sales teams and the engineering teams and the product teams. If you lose that clue, and you lose that perspective, you know, you're really screwed, like when times get tough. And that's why, like, but Twitter, like, it'll be a really fascinating use case in complete lack of the comms team, like at the most extreme levels for a company that, for communications, is the foundation of the business. I hadn't actually thought about the junior, you know, being a junior comms person mm -hmm. right now until you just right. said that. But you're right. I mean, a lot of the stuff that I learned kind of early on in my career were because, you know, of just the timing. And I was, you know, able to sort of, I would say like excel a career because of that. One of the things I always say, you know, I've been in house for a really long time now, but I started my career on the agency side, my PR yeah. career on the agency side. Whenever I hire people, I want them to have at least worked in an agency at one point or another. Mm -hmm. um, one, because I think the grind is just different. But two, I think right now, you know, if you are a junior comms person at a company that's maybe sliced their comms team in half for better or for worse. I mean, an agency is actually a good place to go, I think, you know, yeah. and I think, yeah. Yeah. Um, or it could be a good option because I think that's a place where they still got the teams and, you know, especially mm -hmm. like if they're cutting down their in-house, they might have to keep the agency, so on and so forth. You know, you learn a lot. So that's my PSA to all the junior comms people. <laughs> No, I, I totally agree. I totally agree. I know agencies have gone out of favor in the last five years because so many people could get great internal roles and you have the promise of equity and all this stuff. But I 100% agree that it is the best training ground you possibly can get. Obviously, agencies have been hit hard from a talent perspective. And now if they can regain some of that talent and build back up, we're going to like really see some interesting times. And like, you know, what agencies, you know, really make the most out of these next year, couple of years, um, which I think is going to be fascinating. Um, I also think like, you know, if you can make it through this time, like 
These are mm-hmm. quote unquote war times, right? And in war times, that's when you get promoted. That's when you are able to kind of show off who you are. It's enabled you to like really go beyond like your alleged skill set and prove yourself. It's a hard time to be in comms, but it's an absolutely fascinating time. And it's super dynamic and super interesting because of it. Yeah, you're going to learn so much. I, lo- I love the point you made earlier yeah. about how this is the time to almost expand your role, right? Like hopefully you're not doing it because half your team got cut. But right, like internal, when times are tougher, internal comms becomes more important. I mean, I just think about, we got a lot of B2B companies in our portfolio during the happy times, the sales team probably didn't need that great a story to sell. And now they need a story, you know, about why their product is right for this environment, right? Internal comms is so Mm -hmm. important. I tell people all the time, like you're, if you are in, if you are in external comms, your first audience is actually still internal. Mm-hmm. You know, it's your employees, always. Oh, 100%. This is actually kind of what we did at Pramana. We, it was funny. We had this like, okay, we're these smart people. We've done this a million times before. And we would, we, you know, kind of was a fancy consultancy. You know, we, we didn't really position ourselves to media relations. It was more positioning and strategy work and some organizational design stuff. And we would go into these organizations, and I mean like crazy startups, up to Fortune 500, entertainment companies, sports, like big sports brands, media companies. And they'd hire us because like there was some like messaging thing that was not working. Like, you know, our PR firm sucks. Like, how come this thing doesn't work? Or our customers don't understand like what our product actually does. Or investors really don't get our story. You know, something's wrong, what's broken. And so we would go in and like, we had the benefit of whether we worked in these organizations before working complex businesses. And we just start asking questions and we, you know, we kind of formalize this over time and kind of create a whole methodology around it. And nine times out of 10, like whatever the end tactical problem was, it was almost always tied to some internal mm-hmm. discombobulation. And... I, we just ended up doing these presentations almost with every client where it's just like, this is, this, this person's not talking to this person. You're not talking to them. They're not hearing you. Your employees don't get what you do. This is not an end. This is not a PR firm problem. This is not a messaging, like end messaging problem. This is a you problem. And it's all mm-hmm. about like you not being aligned. And so here are ways to align yourself. And that can translate into just get everybody together and have a conversation or let's do this North Star mission exercise or like, let's come up with a narrative that aligns you. Kind of doesn't matter, but like the alignment is what matters. And we would do all this work and it effectively became like very high-end internal alignment communications work, which was super profound and interesting. And it would like bring us to like the, like the places that like even like a McKinsey couldn't get to because they're just focused on the spreadsheets. But it was like this thing, which I just learned over and over again, it felt like was like, no matter like how impressive the company was on the outside, they would still need this stuff on the inside. And, and I just think that like as an industry and as leaders in the industry, like if you just reset yourself in terms of like, what am I doing to align like my team today? What am I doing to align our leaders with our employees today? What am I doing to align our leaders, period? Like to make sure that they are on the same page. 
like you immediately accelerated your place to like being like a math, you know, strategist. And um, it honestly, 80% of it just comes from listening and asking the right questions and then calling out bullshit and calling out like dissonance and not papering over it. If you like are in an organization where you're just like, this is broken, you know, Bob doesn't talk to Sally. They never talk to each other. That's a whole dynamic. And the lead comes machines down the line and you don't do anything about it. It's on you. But like, if you actually like call it out, bring them together and say like, it's all because you guys are one person's talking this technical language and you're talking these theoretics and like, let's come together and create a common language in between you. Now, everyone in the company understands it because Bob and Sally are now talking out the same song sheet. The interesting thing I think you sort of bring up is at the end of the day, there's so much that isn't rocket science. Like it's literally just, can you relate mm -hmm. to people? Can you understand what motivates people? Can you bring people together? Like it's not all that difficult, honestly, like in that respect, I think sort of understanding it and taking it from there. Well, I think to your, the key point here is that sometimes the company's doing quote unquote rocket science and that makes everything harder 100%. and more complex because there's some there's some theory that we're what we're doing here is so special and so technical and so complex that everything mm -hmm. gets complexified and the job of like a good comms person is obviously to simplify but you simplify if you could simplify and unify at the same time then you're really really effing good at your job and and I think that's the key sometimes like some people unify without the simplification some people simplify without the unification. If you can do both, it's pretty powerful. I think you're I think you're right. The key here though is that the comps person has to have the respect of the technical leader, right? Because there's all this you know, technical stuff going on. Everybody thinks they're saving the world mm -hmm. and doing something super important. And the comps person can come in and try to be the unifier, right? And the explainer, but they have to be, they have to have the experience, mm -hmm. I think, to have the respect of the leader in order to be listened to, you know, because they're one of the few roles in the company that can cut across all those divisions. Yeah. And I think you're never going to right. right technical the founder, like if they're a technical founder, and I don't think you should try. But what you can do is do like great reveals of what's actually happening inside the organization or what's happening outside the organization. And again, like the it's not, and again, this is another combination thing, like the simplifying unified thing, but like, obviously you're this like listening device, like inside the business and also outside the business. And if you can combine those two things, it's extremely powerful and you're the only person pretty much in the company that does that. Um, but I think like finding ways to use that insight um, to reveal kind of like things that this technical genius founder like otherwise didn't see or has like has been obscured to them over time is is like your power move and um and you do it like not in a jackass way you do it like in a helpful like constructive way which is like did you know or have you heard this is like i'm going to come up with like this perspective and i'm going to show, show it to you in a way that's irrefutable and and then i'm also going to give you a pass out or a path to solve um, which is, um, but I, I just, that you get leaning into that is so important. And like, obviously the opposite of that is what unfortunately a lot of people do, maybe who are new, who don't understand the role, who have been thrust into a role, like 
without a lot of context um, or experience, which is I'm kind of going to wait around and tell people, tell me what to do. I'm going to wait and I'm just going to do this like outbound communications stuff where, you know, we have a product mm -hmm. announcement or someone's going to give a speech. I'm going to pitch it and I'm going to do these things. And then two years later, you're basically like, okay, what have you done? Well, I pitched this, I did this, but like, yeah, but like, I don't know. It's like you, you haven't played that strategic role that you could play, that strategic partner role that you could play. And I think that transition from kind of just like doing stuff to being that strategic partner is like the place that we need to all need to get to faster. Okay. But so here, this assumes that you have what we were talking about, which is like a leadership team that understands and respects the comms function, right? Mm -hmm. So if you can provide yeah. this, you've earned the, you know, all that good stuff. Let's say, you know, you own several companies and then decide to buy Twitter. <laughs> just, just for example. Just as an example that may or may not be true. He, Elon already hates me after the podcast on TechCrunch, so I'm digging my hole <laughs> here. To me, Elon either never respected his, because he did this at Tesla too. Like Tesla doesn't have a comms team either. Yeah. So this isn't yeah. like new. The man does not respect or believe in comms teams. So to his credit, he just kind of gets rid of them, which is nice of him. So he's not putting people in these shitty situations. My mm -hmm. question for you is like, what are sort of your thoughts on that realm of, you know, what he's doing? If you're in a situation where your leadership team just doesn't respect it, is it like a, can you change their mind or do you just got to go? <laughs> Well, there's like not respect at a normal level. <laughs> and then there's like Elon well, yeah. Twitter. Like, mm -hmm. it's like, these are completely Well, I mean, I, you different. know, at least Elon yeah, got yeah. rid of everyone. <laughs> so it's fine. Well, I mean, let me just say like the Twitter thing is, can you swear on this podcast? Like it's, yes. it's just, it's fucking insane. There was no comms team at Twitter like in 2009, but there was a comms founding there. There was like Biz Stone, who was one of the co-founders, he would write blog posts and incredibly articulate like human. And, you know, he was able to communicate like what Twitter was and what it was trying to do in a very effective way. Um, there was also a, the head of product was, is a, was an outstanding communicator. So there's like, there was a comms founding uh, underpinning at the kind of the core of Twitter. And when I came in, it became just about scale and how we deal with like this stuff in Iran and Japan and like South America and Washington DC and Brussels and all the stuff that we had to deal with. But even like in that first year in 2010, when I started building out the team, like, you know, I think we ended up with like a seven person team by the end of 2010. And we had so much more work to do. We could have like tripled the team and still like, it would have been insane. And then you think about 2022 and Elon firing 90 to 100 comms people. Like, it's unbelievable, honestly. Obviously, this is a communications platform that like lives and breathes communications and it's all about transparency. It's about openness. It's about like being able to explain yourself. It's not about being able to spin your way out of anything. And I think like Twitter comms people have done a really great job over the years to like uphold that. And the context of what those people did was like, it's so important. First of all, like internal communications roles, like the fact that there's no internal communications now at this company is bonkers. But think about policy communications like all around the world, like trying to communicate like how you're managing really complex policy situations like in Asia and in Africa or even Washington, D.C. Like not having those people seems to be a bit of a gap. 
like who's doing that? This no one. It's just is like, like it's it just isn't there like a mandate that you have to disclose things? No, but much like the infrastructure Twitter that hasn't broken yet, that's because there was like really great engineers who made it pretty strong over the years and they did a good job. There is like this built up goodwill, but like over time that will break down and evaporate. To me, it's just it's mind blowing because you think about how important Twitter has become mm. to the political discourse, right, to democratic movements around mm. the world. Not to put mm. you on the spot, but like what happens? You know, I've seen a lot of people who on Twitter who are like, oh, this has been great, but, you know, I'm gone now. This is my sign of protest. I'm leaving. Are people really going to leave? Well, the best is like most like ex-coms folks are actually yeah. like saying, calling shit out. Right. Are people going to leave? I mean, Again, it like happens over time. And I think what people don't understand is that like those relationships with politicians, those relationships with entertainers, those relationships with media institutions, not just in the, we have a very insular U.S. perspective right now with Elon, but this is a very global thing, right? I mean, there are people in India who have relationships with people who play cricket, who like work for the, you know, the Indian newspapers, they're who are, you know, work in Bollywood, like mm -hmm. the, they had like their people at Twitter, right? They don't exist anymore. And I just, over time, when like things start happening or problems start happening and there's no one to turn to or no one to provide context to in a normal comms way, like that's just going to like evaporate your reputation and like your durability. I just mm -hmm. think that's going to happen. Then people will leave the platform. Well, and on, and like people will leave the company, like the employees. I mean, if I'm watching the news well, just mm -hmm. like go to hell, I mean, you know, it goes back to what I was saying, like your first actual audience is your employees and what they, I mean, I learned this yep. firsthand the, the first time that Tableau's stock dropped in half. It, I realized, oh my God, mm -hmm. they're seeing things in the, the online or in news articles that aren't like a total, you know, we're, we're still working through it. And they're like, wait, is the company going under? I'm like, the mm -hmm. company's not going under. But you you realize like people will leave if they think the company is going under, right? And so it's really important to that, you know, the CEOs out there and saying, no, the company's not going under. This is a blimp. Here's what's going on. When you meet with your employees for the first time in three weeks after first like starting, you shouldn't mention that the company might go bankrupt. That'd be a bad strategy. <laughs> no, it's that that's I mean, I would yeah, have struck in that out of the talking message, points, but you know, yeah, bad yeah. but he's not comms yeah. people, so I don't, yeah. 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 I don't know. So there's there's Twitter, which is an extreme example with an extreme leader. There is, however, I think a lot of really good work that's being done by comms mm -hmm. people at companies that maybe aren't doing as well. And there are really good emails and letters from CEOs that are going out and layoffs and accountability. Mm -hmm. What do you think about sort of some of the companies that are, are doing this well, even when their company maybe isn't doing well financially or whatever? Yeah. Or I mean, I thought it was kind of funny. Like, it was funny when um, uh, Meta laid off. I mean, it's not funny that they laid off 10,000 people. That sucks. Yeah. But I found it interesting that in any other like year, month, time, decade, like them doing that. 10,000 people, like, by the way, the day after the election, um, in the midst of all this insanity, like, people don't give them endless shit for it. And they were able to do it, and they communicated relatively effectively. There was, like, you know, uh, Zuckerberg's note around it was, like, thoughtful and kind of hit all the right buttons and all the right tones and extremely well-written. Um, 
I think like, you know, Brian Chesky kind of did this with Airbnb right after the pandemic started. Everyone praised that. I think certainly the messaging has been good on those kinds of notes. But I think importantly, one theme also exists is like the severance also has been extremely, I would say like generous is probably not the right word, but like very acceptable, Mm -hmm. like, right, like, you know, thoughtful, like well thought through, well considered. And like, if you're getting laid off, like it sucks, but like the company is doing the best it's best it can in a bad situation is what people are feeling like. Right. And, and I think also we are living in a reality where like you lay off 10,000 people and you still basically have the same number of employees that you had at the beginning of the year. So there's also been this extreme hiring that's been going on too. Um, I think we haven't even got to the point where it really hurts yet. And we haven't really got to the point of bad firings and like, and even like really good layoffs when companies are really like going into their fourth round of layoff potentially next year or soon after, if we really hit a recession um, and companies start, we we haven't even seen many companies go under, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, outside of kind of some of the Web3 stuff. And so I think that's where really the rubber is going to be the road. The companies that have laid folks off are still doing pretty well. Um, It's just that they've overhired and they're able to like afford kind of generous severance. The lessons I've taken from this is like people have learned, people have done a good job. I think there's like, and I think like even in some of these big companies that laid folks off, they've done it in a way where like it didn't feel super janky. It didn't feel like people were treated poorly or miscommunicated to. I think it was like the signals were there. People were communicated to both at a high level group level and at an individual level. And I think that's super important. But I think like being nice, you know, it only will get you so far when stuff really starts getting closer to the bone. What do you think about, you know, I feel like there's a lot of CEOs that have been leaning in and sort of like taking accountability. Like I think the Shopify CEO wrote, you know, I got this wrong. Do you feel like that's sincere? I mean, what are the types of things you would you would want to see in a kind of a layoff memo if you were writing it? I don't want to see the CEOs cry, number one. Um, <laughs> I did see that. That was that was hard to watch. <laughs> Yeah. I think some of those sorry, and I think there's like the performative sorry stuff, right? And like, you know, you know, it like any CEO will say at the end of the year, it mean all I gotta do is just blame it on me. I just blame it on me and then I'd write it and like just say sorry five thousand times and I say I fucked up. Like that's all I gotta do. Like I'll do that any day of the week. I don't give a shit. Right. And so like there's some who obviously actually mean it and who genuinely do care. And I think within the company, those people who have always acted that way, like good times and bad times, if they say that, they're going to be trusted. The people who have never acted that way, who suddenly do like the crocodile tears, like employees will be like, this guy's, you know, just full of BS, right? And and so I I don't think you could fake your way out of that. I think it's like, that's just who you are. Like be who you are. Like, you know, I think that's the key thing here is like, you're dealing with some raw human stuff. And and if you're doing raw human stuff, you gotta be like raw and human yourself. And and that means like being a bigger version of who you really are. And so if you've never actually shown empathy before, or you've never like been that kind of person, you're more of like a marine or you know, what or like that like more old school leader, it's like you still have to be an old school leader. Yeah. 
um, because otherwise people just call you out. Right. You have to be authentic because if you're not. Okay. No crocodile tears. Yeah. Yeah. Just in general, any observations about the media landscape as we, especially here in the Valley, have sort of moved into this new, more difficult economic situation, but also a situation where, you know, dealing with the media is 10 times more complex, you know, than it used to be. Any trends you see in the media landscape, maybe in tech, particularly in tone of coverage, how stories are getting done? Well, it's been super fascinating watching like the FDX stuff. Yes. But it, there's this, this like weird counter, like just weird, this thing where the New York Times, like where we are right now at the end of November is that the New York Times is getting hit on for not being hard enough on FTX. And they're about to host SPF, you know, after at a oh, conference, right. obviously he'll be calling it from the Bahamas if he's actually in the Bahamas. Oh, yeah. And so a lot of people are saying like, why is the New York Times who's like, giving all this like endless grief to all these different startups and technology in general. Why are they giving this guy a pass? Like it must be because he like donated to all these Democrats. I mean, that was the, that was the nicest the New York Times has ever been to tech. Ironically. Um, <laughs> it's really interesting. And so like, there's this, this ongoing conversation of like, why are they so harsh in some realms, but then also like thing in this realm. I don't really have a great answer for that, but like, it's, it's a fascinating like dynamic. I think like the bottom line is, is that we got into this place of an antagonistic relationship um, in the mid 2010s, um, kind of like after, after like Uber to Uber stuff and even like some early Airbnb things and like, just kind of like, you know, tech companies gone bad, mm-hmm. like not like, you know, some were more kind of malicious and bad. And then some was just kind of like just doing their jobs. Like uh, you, you guys remember this, but like there were time, like, you know, it was like 10 years ago where buses that were going down to Google were like getting like, you know, attacked yeah. by like protesters. People were throwing eggs like, at the buses, and, right? Um, yeah, and that it was crazy. Exactly. So there was like this whole like kind of like thing that was happening. Then, but like at the time, like the tech media was pretty fawning still. And so that kind of created like this like vibe shift, as the kids say. And, um, and there was like this kind of like shift into a more antagonistic stance, which was, we've got to hold these, like now, like these people accountable because they hold, they're so valuable and they have to look money. And to that, I'd say like natural in the course, like, of course you do. Like the tech industry won and like the tech industry that like was like in the early 2000s or late 2000s which was kind of like this upstart thing and trying to come back after the dot-com bust, like, you know, kind of cute and kind of small, kind of tiny, like in like all these little startups, like they deserved to be like covered as like those cute, nice things. But then when they got really big and powerful, like they deserved to be covered as really big and powerful entities. And like, you know, like my kind of feel on that is like to the victors go the toils, right? Mm -hmm. If you're a victor and you like, are super dominant, you should like, you got to deal with that shit, right? You got to like manage it. You got to take it on. Yeah. Now there's a pendulum swing so far that you actually like people are reflexively negative. Um, I think it definitely has when it comes to like women leaders, you know, who mm-hmm. are running different companies. And we've seen time and time again, where women, you know, are held to a different standard than, than, than male CEOs. And that's like beyond the New York Times. It's like into like tech publications who do that. And 
I don't think in every single case that they had been quote unquote wrong in, in their coverage, but I think it's definitely the pendulum has swung too far there. There's been like examples of just like kind of just stuff blown out of proportion. Um, and I think like part of that has to do with just like expectations and perceptions that potentially are misplaced. Um, and a lot of it has to do like also with companies saying that they're going to change the world and that they're going to be all these amazing things and they're not like being able to do all those amazing mm -hmm. things. So there's like this calibration that's constantly going on and we live in the middle of it and we watch it all the time. And I think like what we don't see is like, well, how come this doesn't happen like in the auto industry or stuff like that? Well, because that industry is not very dynamic. Mm -hmm. There's not these wild shifts that happen all the time. Yeah. There's not like these new upstarts that like totally change like the way people think about an industry. They don't like change the way people like do manage themselves in cities or transportation or like do all this stuff. Like we're constantly disrupting stuff. So like it's of course like we should be like called out for that. So I think like we just see a lot all the time. And like this is like we live in this pet petri dish of like action between media and like these organizations. And we tend to blow individual stuff out of proportion, but like when you pull it back, like it makes a lot of sense just from this kind of pure pendulum standpoint of, yeah. you know, people like maybe being more into innovation to people maybe calling you out for like things that are questionable, but maybe also over exaggerated. That's, I think you kind of articulated my question finally there was like, are things more adversarial, mm -hmm. less so? I mean, I also think about just the enormous blowups that have happened in the tech industry, starting with Theranos, right? And then WeWork, right? And now it, what was the story that Michael Lewis was apparently embedded with Sam Bankman-Fried? So was well, SBF. Yeah. yeah, and FDR. Yeah. So, but I also think like we've also, we've also like the people in tech, there's a whole brand of individuals in tech who like love getting in conflicts with the media and calling them out on stuff because it's really good for their profile. And they're able to rally like yeah. founders and rally tech people and like be like, oh yeah, gonna F the New York Times, like whatever. You know, I'm all for this DC or I'm all for that. And like, you know, that there's active, like that just intentional. Like it's intentional to like create those divisions because like you're able to like separate the different tribes of mm -hmm. this world. And like now there's like a media tribe and like that's counterbalanced with like this tech tribe. And I think most people sit in the middle, kind of watching it and trying to like understand it. But like, you know, it's, it's, you know, there's always ounces of truth and a lot of it on both sides, but so much of this is just like performative and it is meant it, to kind of foment stuff. Mm -hmm. It's also the time, times we live in. Like I was having this conversation with someone the other day of like, the crazy shit has been going on since the beginning of time. We just have like, 24 hour access to it and cameras mm -hmm. in our, you know, pockets. And listen, I, I mean, weirdly, like, crazy shit has been going on since the Romans. <laughs> no, crazy shit's been going on for a long time, but very in particular, and I think really importantly, there's always been this dynamic of San Francisco, California versus New York. And that has existed since basically the gold rush. And if you go back, I mean, it's amazing. Like I actually did this once where I like went back in like New York Times headlines over the years. There's always this like desire and need to like pump up the boom and proclaim the bust. Mm -hmm. And like, I don't know yeah. what it is about like the psychology in New York, but like 
you know, they've been calling, like, they've been exaggerating stuff about California, specifically San Francisco, since 1849. <laughs> and just as, as, as rinse and repeat. This is like, true, really, though. literally, rinse I think and repeat. This, is this, true. Should be a, yeah. this should be a t shirt. New York yeah. exaggerating <laughs> shit since 1949. <laughs> Yeah. I'm an and East Coaster, of, I can say this. Well, because, because like, <laughs> and I don't know if you guys have dealt with it. I'm, I mean, I'm making when I was shirts, tw- guys. <laughs> but when I was at Twitter, when I was at Twitter, like, it was like the same, like, Twitter was a microcosm of it. And I think because we were also prodding the media industry, and media industry was a big part of Twitter. But it was like, they wanted to, like, create something that there wasn't. And, like, they wanted to, like, take, like, an ounce and turn it into something like, like a pound of, like, pain and misery. And... Um, and I just like, and a lot of it wasn't even the reporters. It was like the reporters would come to you and they'd be like, oh yeah, I'm working on the story. I'm, I'm finding the same. Well, I think I'm done with the story. It's going to be, you guys will be really happy with it. It's going to like be, it turned out great. And like two weeks later, it's like a dead bird on a cover. And it's like, oh, what the, what happened there? <laughs> and oh, bird. sorry. I went back to my editors. I went back bird. to, I went, well, I went back to my editors. And they just felt like there wasn't enough, you know, conflict there. It wasn't enough challenge there. I'm but like, you, well, I mean, I mean, that, but that's how this works, right? Like when I came to California 22 years ago. I know it works, but that, but, but, but a lot, I, a hundred percent. And I, and you, you know this well, Becky, like you've lived yeah. this, right? And it's, and, but there, but there's something very specific about the media industry and in I agree. And their feelings toward this disruptive industry that impacts them specifically and, and has that issue. So, in that many ways, I sympathize with the quote unquote technologists. In many ways, I also think like there's way too thin a skin, or there's also just a complete lack of understanding of how journalism works. Right. But I think I think you're right though. And I think that yeah. the decision mm-hmm. like even when I was at the journal, the decision makers were still in New York. And when I was sent to cover technology, yeah. I used to cover Wall Street. I was told by the woman at the journal who handled all the internal yeah. HR stuff, she goes, Becky, I want you to go out there and I want you to cover it like a foreign correspondent. Everybody who's out there, they're all too in it. You know what I mean? And they're not seeing all the weird things that are going to happen. That's mm-hmm. how I want you to cover it. But it's true. They view it as as like an outpost of foreign country. And I think they're kind of threatened by it. Right. I think that's why they mm-hmm. have to be so snarky. You, yep. you know, you know what, though? Yep. It kind of is yeah. a foreign country. And I'll tell you why. So I've never actually lived on the West Coast, believe it or not. I was born on the East Coast. I lived on the East Coast. I moved to Colorado five years ago. And five and a half years ago. And I've always had this, I've loved it because I have this world where I go to San Francisco and Seattle and I, I'm in my bubble and I do, you know, I get it. And then I come back to Colorado where no one knows what I do or why I do it or like, and now they've started to like understand the whole tech thing. But like to most of America, our little world, like we're in it as comms people, especially tech comms, we're like super, super in it. But to the rest of America, mm-hmm. we're all insane. And it's like, you know, and it's it's funny to me because I'm like, okay, well, you guys are saying we're insane on the Twitter that we made for you, but whatever. And we created like, the platform to allow you to, you know, elite us right. about it. I'm like, I created this for you. Like, you know, relax, like, mm-hmm. you know, um, but it, it is kind of this interesting, it is a little bit of a foreign land to a lot of people and the only reason that I, I kind of know that is is because I sort of have the separation of my lives. Um, and I've realized a lot of people have like no idea, you know, what this this world we live in looks like, except for what they see in the news, which 
makes sense that well, or, or what they see but the or what they stuff. see like on their phone or like in their daily life right. i mean now like what's different right. between now and 15 years ago is that 15 years ago you know back when you're a journalist like you know this was a more of a theoretical thing it was like back-end stuff like you're covering cisco like what the hell cisco do yeah, yeah. right and, you know now it's like you your glue to your phone your Yo, be real. Okay, gotta be real right now. All right, my you know, team does everybody. be real. And yeah, it's, it's uh, yeah, like it's, it's bizarre. Yeah, it's really yeah. Bizarre. But like, but I mean, but, I'm just saying, like, true. it's I mean, now. It really it's is. like we everyone lives in it. Yeah, now. like there's yeah. not. It's 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 the how it works or what the companies do is is still maybe foreign, but like or how they operate. But but like again, the industry won. It's yeah. now in the palms of like most citizens of this country. When you get into like no matter where you are, a screen follows you or you follow a screen. And and so I think that like it's you know, it's less weird, but but there always will be the weird outcomes. Like now it's like now the weird stuff is like climate tech or mm-hmm. something like that, right? Or like some next phase like AI, right? Like we'll always be creating new weird things, thank God. Um, and there'll always be things for New Yorkers to complain about, thank God. But like this, so this will this will always rinse and repeat itself, and like that's awesome. Um, but I think like for the average human, like this, the, our world has been somewhat demystified. Right, exactly. I think it is demystified, and now we're kind of on a level playing field. Mm. Well, I don't know, Sean. This has been this has been pretty high level for just checking in. What do you think, Kiana? I feel like we're talking about some kind of big meta meta issues I, on this pod. I liked it. I mean, this is, I feel very profound right now. I feel like we got deep. That's, that's I, I did, I did my job. Did. We got deep. We, we got know. an F-bomb in there. We did talk about the Romans, <laughs> the gold rush. I mean, there were a lot of historical references yeah. in this pond, which I personally I, enjoy. I mean, yeah. there was yeah. the Romans yeah. and the gold rush. I think hey, everyone guys, should go, uh, you know, to their local <laughs> new library, go through the newspapers. Exactly. Go through and just look at full headlines, get some perspective. I appreciate right. this. This was a lot of fun. Anytime you guys want to go deep, happy to go deeper. Awesome. Okay. Well, Sean Garrett from Mixing was awesome. Talk Great. to you guys soon. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Just Checking In. Follow us at, at Kiana Corliss and at Rebecca Buckman. Just Checking In is a StudioPod media production. Our producer is Teresa Buchanan, and our show coordinators are Nicole Genova and Alex Karkos.